This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. The occupation doesn't only cause damage to us, it corrupts the occupier from within. And we're seeing that today. We're seeing the seams within the Israeli fabric being torn apart. Welcome to Everyday Ubuntu, I'm Mungi. This week, my guest is Sam Bahor, a Palestinian-American from Youngstown, Ohio, living and working at Ground Zero in Palestine. He is a true multi-hyphenate, a business development consultant, activist, public speaker, founder, and the list goes on. He also serves in various capacities in several community organizations, including co-founder of Americans for a Vibrant Palestinian Economy and board member of Just Vision in Washington, D.C. He writes frequently on Palestinian affairs and has been widely published in leading outlets. Sam and I spoke about apartheid, activism, what he's currently focusing on, and Palestine as the motivating factor behind everything on his resume. I am so thankful to him for speaking with me and sharing all that he shared. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And it's good to see you again after seeing you here in Palestine the first time. Yes, in 2017. Um, so I usually ask my guests the same first question. But before I ask that question, I want to ask you, how are you? I'm fine. Thanks for asking. But I'm sure you're aware behind every I'm fine is a watershed of feelings, right? So if you really want to know, I'm angry, sad, frustrated, tired, struggling, steadfast, hopeful, and thankful all at once. So go figure. <laughs> mm, everything. It's, it's a mixed And feeling. there's not ever a great response to that. And when someone asks you, how are you? It's, do I want to get into how I'm feeling now? Or should we just, you know, make it pleasantries and move on? But the question I do start with usually is, you know, my mom says that our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And so I'm wondering what is missing from your extensive resume that people need to know about you? Your mom's a smart lady. I'd say the missing insight of my resume is the motivating factor behind each line and between each line. That, that motivating factor was Palestine whether it's from what I studied to why I entered the university while I was still in high school, uh, to why it took me so long to graduate from the university, to where I work, to what I built, to where I am today, it's all about Palestine. And that doesn't come out in the resume, even though that's the motivating factor behind it. Mm. And, and speaking about Palestine, you know, I think it's always more interesting to hear people describe themselves. So could you give us just a, a brief description of who you are? Sure. By birth, I'm an American, a Palestinian, a Lebanese, a Muslim, and a Christian. As you see, I don't shy away from hyphenated identities. Actually, I embrace them all. Academically, I'm skilled in computer technology, business, and marketing. Professionally, I'm a business development consultant today, experienced in startups. I've worked as a software developer in the U.S. And in Palestine, I was instrumental in establishing the first Palestine uh, private telecommunication company here and the first large-scale shopping plaza, which everyone here calls a mall. Um, as a citizen of this world, I'm involved in a handful of civil society organizations here in Palestine and in the U.S., everything from the Palestinian Circus School to an organization called Just Vision, which is based in D.C. and produces award-winning documentaries on Palestine and Israel. I also frequently write on Palestine and give talks, like I did to yours, to the groups that come by to learn about what's happening here. Personally, 
I'm married to an amazing Palestinian woman from the village of Deir Ghassane, which is in the center of the West Bank. I have to plug her village so I'll be able to go back home today, even though she was born in Jerusalem and lived her entire life in Ramallah. But we as Palestinians, we maintain reference to where our families came from, even if we're not refugees. Um, the concept of place here is very different than in the West, where place is a more of a transient concept. Place here in Palestine is the mountain, sea, trees, and home, and they're all embodied as one and don't budge, not in reality and not in our identities as well. We have two beautiful daughters, Irene and Nadine, both in the U.S. now. Irene working in a startup after studying chemical engineering at MIT, and Nadine is entering her senior year at Harvard studying neuroscience. And one day I'll figure out what both of those mean. I mean, Jesus. Yeah, I heard chemical engineering and neuroscience. <laughs> like, all right, ladies. Hey, if you can do it, do it. Exactly. Um, you know, so in your in your description, you mentioned that you're an American. And so I, I know that you were born in the U.S. But I wonder what made you move back to the West Bank in the, in the 90s? As an activist on Palestine from a very young age, the struggle for freedom and independence became an integral part of me. As an adult, it's what I dedicated my life to. So when the Oslo Accords were signed between Israel and the Palestinians back in the early 1990s, I had been married for one year and we had our first child in the U.S. And I saw that as an opportunity to relocate to Palestine to continue the struggle against the Israeli occupation. But from that point, it was more within a context of economic development. Uh, or which more accurately is called economic resistance, since Israel does not allow us to develop properly, be it our economy or, our, or ourselves. Um, a lot of people ask me why I'm still here, and it's because I read those Oslo Accords before coming, and I had no uh, misinterpretation that they were ending the occupation. They were reshuffling the occupation, and sadly that occupation continues until today. Mm. And, you know, we will speak about the occupation but um, I was speaking to a friend or maybe a few friends about talking to you and sort of asking them, what would you want to know? And one of them, you know, basically said, we so rarely hear about the Palestinians defined in their own terms. It's always in the context of the occupation and oppression. And I wonder, what do you think the world needs to know about Palestine and the Palestinian people that is independent of for lack of a better word, the conflict. I mean, we could say the conflict is military occupation, ethnic cleansing, settler colonialism, but what, what should we know about Palestinians independent of that? I would say that Palestine and Palestinians existed long before the creation of Israel. Absolutely. The, the year 1948 was not our beginning. It was our disruption. And many times that historic fact is missed as we all run to put out the next fire that the occupation has lit. If we look at Palestine pre-1948, you will see that we exported oranges, that we had a thriving culture scene here, uh, a, a thriving publishing industry here. Uh, so there's a lot about Palestine that's worthy of uh, reflecting on that has very little to do with the conflict per se. And I think that would be the one thing I would want people to see, a thriving society that was disrupted by a global event uh, motivated by Western powers. And I think that's one thing. The other is, I would say that I would want people to know that Palestinians are human, struggling for their in inalienable rights, nothing more. I know being human is a very low bar, 
But when Senator Bernie Sanders made that case in the U.S., he got pushback. But that says more about the U.S. than it does about Palestinians. Yeah, being human is a low bar, but it seems like we can't seem to get over that bar. So how low actually is it? Exactly. I think it's getting better. I mean, more and more people are being exposed thanks to social media and thanks to our younger generation who has become very apt in making our case globally. So the more people understand the reality on the ground, you don't have to tell them anything more. Their common sense, their set of values, for the most part, will get people to see what's right and what's wrong. And I'm a strong believer that in some cases, there is a right and wrong. Not everything is an opinion. Ethnic cleansing is not an opinion. Destroying Gaza over and over and over again is not an opinion to discuss. It is wrong, and we need to stop these kinds of events. Yeah, my um, my husband always says, like, we need to get rid of the fetish to agree to disagree. Like, we can't agree to disagree on this. There, there, exactly. is, there is one exactly. way forward. Exactly. Yeah. So I know that yesterday, Bibi was removed from power and, and Naftali Bennett became the new PM. And I'm wondering, how much worse will it get under Bennett? It can get very worse under Bennett, uh, assuming that it's not worse already. I mean, we've been living under an extreme amount of pressure because of this right-wing Israeli government, but not only this right-wing Netanyahu government. The pressures that have been put on this community have been put on it for decades now. The right was in power in Israel. The left was in power. Uh, supposed peaceniks were in power. Generals were in power. All of it is the same as it applies to Palestinians. There may be a change within Israel itself, but as the Israeli state looks at the Palestinian issue, uh, they see it through one lens. And it's the attempt to gain as much Palestinian geography as possible with the least amount of Palestinian demography on it. And I don't think that's going to change under Bennett. It's going to require external pressures to get Israel to come to its senses. Otherwise, we're going to be in this uh, revolving door leadership in Israel, which has very little effect on the pressures and destruction that's happening on the Palestinian side. And speaking of external pressures, you know, something my mom has has always said to me since I was maybe in high school and, and, and became interested in, in Palestine and like in the Palestinian fight for justice was, you know, the U.S. is not a, a, a neutral or impartial ally. Like we know where the U.S. stands and the U.S. can no longer be the sort of pressure that we think it is. But I think that there's maybe not enough discussion of like the real propagators of the the lobby in the U.S., if you know what I mean. Um, it seems to me that far-right Christians seem to be like the real force behind the Israel lobby. And I wonder if you, also being an American, you know, understand why we don't speak about them as the ones that really whether it, it helps their cause or not, really push the lobby. Actually, I think we do. More recently, it's become very apparent. This constituency in the U.S. has been totally exposed for anyone caring to see. Uh, but you have to want to see to be able to understand the dynamics that are happening. Their Christian fundamentalism is closer to the KKK than it is to Jesus. Uh, sadly, they are, they are a huge and active voting bloc in the U.S., which is causing direct harm to Palestinians, but also they're causing direct and serious harm to the U.S. itself. So you know, I would say many U.S. legislators are being held politically hostage uh, by this community. 
and by APAC, which is the one of the pro-Israeli lobbies in the U.S. that is in full alignment with the right wing inside of Israel. And these forces of destruction will continue to cause damage unless progressive forces get their act together, which is happening, I must say, albeit slowly. Uh, but at this pace, the destruction being caused is serious and in some cases irrevocable. When people die in Gaza by the hundreds, they're not coming back. So we have to get our act together to hold this community in the U.S., which is pressuring U.S. legislators uh, to stop violating the law. First, U.S. law and also international law. Otherwise, the damage they're causing will take more than we have to repair it. Mm -hmm. So when I was an undergrad, I took a course called Israeli Foreign Policy because I sort of wanted to see like what they were teaching. Like, you know, like my brain just doesn't compute what's happening as logical. So I was like, okay, there's a full course on this. I need to figure out what's happening. And I think it was um, someone from the State Department from Israel that was teaching the course. And my final paper was about why, you know, the international community will not speak up about what's happening in Palestine. And, and my whole thesis was that the West feels guilty about what happened in the Holocaust, and this is sort of them thinking in some way that they're making reparations and they're allowing this to happen. But I wonder if there's a different hypothesis. Like, why won't the international community stand up to Israel? I think there's many reasons, and you mentioned one major one. Some of them are historical, like you said, which put the you know Western countries on a guilt trip that they can't get over because of their own actions. And their actions were not here in Palestine, but they were in Europe. And we we end up paying the price for that. So that's maybe one major motivating factor. But there are other reasons which are pure interest-based as well. Uh, this increased uh, when Israel became an, an arms exporter, which in essence placed countries' security at risk if they acted to bring Israel in line with international law or hold it accountable. When countries buy weapons from other countries, they tend not to hold them accountable because any disruption of the arms that they receive will uh, put their own security in a detrimental state. So Israel played on this big time. And today they take this free money from the U.S. They develop weaponry, they develop drones, security products, uh, and uh, market them to the world. And by doing that, they create strategic relationships, even with countries that you would expect would know better, like some of the Asian countries, uh, like India, for example, or some countries which are selling to Israel, like Germany, for example, who continue to weaponize Israel, or France, or, of course, the U.S. I mean, The U.S., Canada, yeah. I mean, funding is one thing. Supplying weapons of destruction to a state which has proven itself to be a rogue state in its region is a, a tinderbox about to explode. It exploded earlier this month, and I expect it to explode again in, in a very short period of time. So it's not only about a guilt, it's also about interests. And that's where we, citizens of the world, have to, each of us in our countries, stand up and hold our own countries accountable to what they're doing, whether it's supplying Israel with weapons or buying weapons from Israel. Uh, that is supporting Israel to continue what it's doing. And if Israel doesn't have a cost, to what it's doing, we can only expect it to do the same. Right. And speaking of interest, you know, the BDS movement was pivotal in ending apartheid in South Africa. And there is a movement now. But I mean, the US, you know, there's legislation in the US to sort of 
make people not support the BDS movement or speak out about Israel in any way. But I wonder if you can explain what BDS is for any of my listeners who may not know. Sure. And I should note here that the organization that I'm a board member of, Just Vision, we are in uh, the final stages of producing a documentary about the state of affairs in the U.S. as it relates to allowing American citizens to boycott or not boycott. And that'll be coming out later this oh, year. Yes, please share that with us when it's out. We, we definitely will. Before I explain what the boycott movement is, let me say what it is not. It is not a religion. And I say this because too many folks, some even in the solidarity movement, think that supporting BDS is some sort of litmus test that one must pass to be accepted as someone who stands for the rights of the Palestinians. I think that's a mistake. What the BDS movement is, is a movement. It's a movement established by a couple hundred civil society organizations, Palestinian civil society organizations, and they have three very clear objectives. One is to end the Israeli military occupation of the occupied territory. The second is to stop the discrimination against Palestinian citizens inside the state of Israel. And the third is the right for our refugees to return home. All three of these goals are 110% aligned with international law. And I would add that the movement views them as a single package. So some people maybe accept number one and number two, but have a problem with number three. The movement would look at that as being a weak uh, uh, standing in terms of being in solidarity with the Palestinians. But I would add here something. The English dictionary has three words that fall on separate pages, and they're not a movement per se, but rather actions peoples and states can take. And the first word is B. It starts with boycott, D for divestment, and S for sanctions. Those are three individual acts. Also, in addition to the movement itself, that people can adopt if they want to take nonviolent action to hold Israel accountable. All of these, whether it's the movement or the individual tools, are there to levy a cost on wrongdoers. Those who criminalize, like you stated, about 24, 25 states now in the U.S. have legislated to criminalize boycott. Those who criminalize all forms of nonviolent resistance are sending a clear message that the only source of resistance that works is violence. Think Vietnam. The Palestinians tried not to go the Vietnam route, but to go the South African free apartheid route in adopting boycott, divestment, and sanction. And now we're being criminalized in the U.S. All, nine, all these nonviolent tools of resistance, including these four that I mentioned, the movement and B and D and S, they are all part of a very, very large quilt of nonviolent resistance. So you can accept the movement, or B, D, or S, or if you don't want those four, pick something else. There is a very large quilt of nonviolent resistance. Pick your patch to start with and start holding Israel accountable. If people don't take on nonviolent resistance, the message that they are sending is the only thing Israel understands is violent resistance. And there I think we will lose. That's why I'm committed to nonviolence, which to me is the harder way to resist this occupation, because the occupation is violent by definition. And to reply to that with nonviolence requires a tremendous amount of effort and discipline uh, and a mindset that is not easy to come by. Absolutely. I mean, not, not easy at all, you know. 
if, if someone is continually violent to you, how do you stay in that state of nonviolence? And, and you saying that, I wonder if through these years and many moments of difficulty and, you know, watching loved ones being harmed and being harmed yourself, what sort of sustains you and keeps you moving in difficult moments? I would say that the essence is that the justice of our cause is a tremendously overwhelming motivating factor. I am convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that this military occupation will come tumbling down. Why? Because I read history. I've read history. I understand that such levels of injustice, as long as a people still are calling for their rights, cannot exist. And the occupation doesn't only cause damage to us, it corrupts the occupier from within. And we're seeing that today. Mm -hmm. We're seeing the seams within the Israeli fabric being torn apart. And more and more, I become convinced that as the global communities start standing out and speaking out, like they did earlier this month after the attack on Gaza, uh, that people are getting it. And I, th I think states and lawmakers are getting it as well. They understand that the world is changing and people are not willing to accept and don't have an appetite for bombing uh, a civilian population over and over again, let alone militarily occupying a population for 54 years now, when occupation is supposed to be a temporary state of affairs. So I do think that the global solidarity movement and the justice of our cause is a motivating factor that keeps me going. I should note here as well the negatives. What doesn't keep me going is our leadership. Uh, our leadership is not motivating me. Sometimes it's a demotivating factor, and we have to do better in producing better leaders, uh, and we're working on that. But because we have good or bad or, 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 or mediocre leaders is not a reason for someone to accept what is being happening to us. Um, international law doesn't say that the occupied people have to produce the best leadership in the world to be protected. That's not a criteria under international law. Having said that, and I put it out here because I think it's important, we have to produce better leadership that understands that the U.S., for example, is on the wrong side of this equation, that Israel cannot be let off the hook and should be held accountable wherever possible. And we have not seen that kind of leadership in Palestine yet. I hope it's coming. Well, you know, I, f I feel like we may be holding the Palestinians to a crazy standard because we produced Donald Trump. So, you know, how... Exactly. How great do we expect people's leaders to be in this day and age? Well said. It's like, well good said. Lord. Um, and you, you spoke about the occupiers being corrupted from within, and that it connects to something that my mom and my grandfather always said about apartheid and how, like, you know, you create this prison that you live in as, as a person who is oppressing others. Like, you then also oppress yourselves because you build up these high walls and gates to protect yourself from this fear that you have made happen. Um, and it's just interesting that people don't understand that, that, you know, when you are harming others, you also are harming yourself. Do you ever wonder what goes on behind the scenes of your favorite homegrown films and TV shows? Well, it's time to pop some popcorn, go behind the camera and meet the people who are making it happen. I'm Mariska Fernandez, host of the Maple Popcorn Podcast. 
In this new series, you will discover exclusive interviews with Canadian icons and hear them talk about Canadian flicks and even break the fifth wall to share set anecdotes. This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female and powered by Telefilm Canada. Subscribe now on the podcast app of your choice and don't miss an episode. Stay in the know by visiting telefilm.ca slash see it all. You know, my younger daughter, when she was very young, I was the, the, this apartheid wall, the separation wall that Israel created. And mm-hmm. it goes right down one of the streets by our house. One side of the street is on the Israeli side of the wall. And one side of the street is on the Palestinian side of the wall. I was taking her there in a car trip to show her the wall. I was trying to explain to her that Israel put this up. And in a naive way, but usually the kids are the ones who say it without any kind of filtering. She right. asked me a question. She said, Dad, why did the Israelis wall themselves in? And I thought that was a powerful statement. She didn't see it as a wall separating us from Israel, because ultimately the wall is actually on Palestinian land, separating Palestinian from Palestinians. But she saw it as a, as, as a, a wall that is separating Israel from its natural region, which is the Middle East. And I think Israel would get a lot of wisdom to think about what she said. The day Israel can bring down this illegal wall and become a natural part of the region is the day that they start rehabilitating themselves. If they want to wall themselves in and pretend like they're their 51st state, they're going to live in turmoil for a very long time. A very long time. Like extremely long. (laughs) Well, then I want to know, because what your daughter said is why they wall wall themselves in. Same thing with South Africans. so Ubuntu is about, you know, not necessarily othering people. It's, it's everyone is different from us, but that doesn't mean we need to other them. And whenever Bibi was looking at defeat or opposition or, or under threat for all of the horrendous things he did, he would always shift the focus to Israel versus Palestine and use the Palestinian people as a threat to regain power. And I just don't think that the U.S. always did the greatest job in reporting that properly. And I wonder, why do you think that this othering that he did was sort of lost in reporting? Is it because we're like literally all daft in the West or are we just actively ignoring it? Uh, You know, after all these years of Netanyahu uh, being in government and four military onslaughts on Gaza and relentless aggression against Palestinians in Jerusalem and the rest of the West Bank, not to forget inside Israel proper, he's been exposed for what he is, a corrupt war criminal. And as we said, the person who became prime minister last night in Israel uh, is to the right of Netanyahu. So we're not holding our breath for real change to come anytime soon. Leading Israeli human rights organizations like Yesh Din or Beit Salem, uh, and more recently the mainstream Human Rights Watch, uh, have all extensively documented and publicly made clear that Israel is guilty of the crime of apartheid. There's no new information to gain. If you want a learned conclusion, all the needed information is available for you to see. All that's left is to find the political will to bring these criminals, be they individuals or states, to accountability. And although I fully agree with you that there's no need to other the other, however, we need to point out criminals who are the other or within our own ranks and hold them accountable. Criminals cannot be brushed aside because they're part of your own community or because they're 
part of the community that's oppressing you. And the quicker that we start holding people and states accountable is the quicker that we will not have to other the other because of a military occupation or because of the state of apartheid or because of racial discrimination. So accountability for me is the linchpin to get us moving beyond seeing one side as right and the other side as wrong. And as I noted, here, as in many places around the world, there is a right and wrong. And the, the, the second we lose focus of what's right and wrong, uh, then I think everything becomes an opinion, including war crime and ethnic cleansing. And I can't let that happen in my own mindset. Mm. And you mentioned, you know, these organizations finally coming out and saying, it's apartheid, which, you know, I mean, Jimmy Carter said in, I don't know, 2006, my grandfather has been saying forever and, and people call him an anti-Semite. The Israeli government doesn't like him because of this. Um, and when everything was happening with the Sheikh Jarrah evictions, friends in the U.S. who I've never seen speak out about Palestine were finally either saying, oh, my God, I had no idea. A little confusing to me. But, you know, again, we all get to places on our own time. Or, or they were finally speaking out. They're saying this is wrong. Some were saying this is actually apartheid, you know, a whole range of things. And what I noticed is that so many of my friends who were speaking out were then getting attacked for speaking out. Um, and it was usually it was usually white people who, would, who were getting attacked because I was saying the same things. This is apartheid. This has been apartheid. I've been studying this for a while. I have been to Israel. I've been to Palestine. And I will tell you, I felt safer in Palestine than I did in Israel, this, that, and the other. And nobody, you know, came at me because I think, how can you then come at a black person and tell me that I don't know what oppression looks like? But then if you're not willing to come at me and say that to me, why are you then going to white people who were saying the same thing as me? You know, it was just, it was just very interesting um, that we could be saying the same thing, but they were getting attacked for it. And I wonder if if you have advice that you'd like to share with people who are activists, and then also these people who are just now coming to the light and maybe don't consider themselves activists, but want to be speaking out and are getting this sort of vitriol and, and being called anti-Semites, even though, you know, I, they're not anti-Semites for calling out what Israel is doing. That's a tough one for me because activism for myself is part of my DNA. It's what people of conscience do when they see oppression mm -hmm. or a need for change. It's not like you're going to come to my calendar and find an entry from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Monday, do <laughs> activism. activism. <laughs> it's, it's not there. But to answer your question, I mean, to activists, my message is to get political. And I mean that with all the meaning of get political. Uh, all of our activism will mean little if we keep viewing ourselves as in the opposition. Getting political is hard. And it requires a skill set I fear too many activists do not have today, whether in Palestine or elsewhere. We know how to mobilize the masses. We know how to go to the streets. But do we know how to assume power? And that's what we need to start thinking about, because that ultimately is where agendas will be set and budgets allocated. For non-activists, I would make it clear to them that I don't expect everyone to put on an activist hat. Uh, but there is a middle ground between merely going to vote once in a while and being a full-skill activist. The middle ground, for me, if a person upholds their civil duty of being involved in the community every day, in any way they feel comfortable, it may be being a volunteer 
It may be being part of your teachers parent teacher association. It may be mobilizing for candidates in your community. However they feel comfortable, that's fine with me. But the goal is to be involved in your community and not wait for the next election because the next election is not democracy. It's an element of democracy. Democracy requires activism every single day. It has to become part of your being and part of your involvement in the community. And this may be political involvement, but it doesn't necessarily need to be. If I don't see people getting involved in civil society organizations and volunteering and so forth, then I know that democracy is at threat because democracy fails when people think dropping a ballot in a ballot box is all they need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the next election may even be too late. You know, the, all the nasty rhetoric and whatnot has happened. And yeah. It's, it's a bit too late for you now to just drop that ballot in there because everyone else has seen everything that's happened and they have made decisions based on what they've been hearing. And, you know, what will dignity look like for the Palestinian people? For the Palestinian people, I think it's not what it will look like. I think that we are uh, a dignified people today. Um, and we're dignified because we're refusing actively to be colonialized, oppressed, and discriminated against. Uh, To me, that's dignity. Uh, In our 70-year struggle, we have had many, many more days of nonviolent resistance than violent ones. It is rather amazing that we wake up every morning in the West Bank, in Jerusalem, in Gaza, in the refugee camps in Lebanon, and in our diaspora with the same aim, freedom and independence. We're not trying to wipe anybody out of the political map or the demographic map. We are basically saying we want our freedom and we want our independence. And that is not only internationally law aligned, it's common sense aligned. Because without those, we have nothing else to stand for. And I I say that proud that we're struggling because there are many indigenous peoples who have lost their struggle. Uh, So not every historic injustice in the world wins. Um, So we need to be able to be acknowledging that dignity for us means that we're still struggling. We are still standing. And if you, as I'm sure you did, you read 70 years of Palestinian history, uh, logic would say that we should not still be standing. The powers of the world try to wipe us off the map. But we are not only standing, but we are thriving with the international global community supporting us. And I do think even during these dark days that we are closer to freedom and independence than we've ever been before. That makes me feel like I'm on the right side of history, at least, hearing that message. Who are the people who have inspired you? Too many to list. (laughs) If I had to pick one, it would be my father. Uh, He taught me how to take being in struggle seriously without being blinded by emotions, how to never stop learning, which I think is a key element that we all have to learn about today, and most importantly, how to be financially independent. The last one gets missed many times, but I think it is a key one to maintaining political independence, which is a rare commodity these days. So that's why when I say I'm engaged in economic development and economic resistance, I don't shy away by saying that. For me, economic uh, development and resistance and livelihood is an act of nonviolent resistance. Being able to put food on the table and send my kids to school while under military occupation is acting against the occupation, which is trying to wipe me off the map. So uh, he would be my hero, I would say, but there's many others as well. 
Of course. You know, so, so we met in Ramallah in 2017. And during my trip, I thought about this thing that we always take friends and family to South Africa. And whenever we take, you know, people from the U.S. to South Africa, they always talk about how they've never seen so much joy and generosity from people who have so much less than they do. And I always like found it weird when they said that. I was like, okay, like <laughs> that's us. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, uh, well, the South Africans are, you know, they 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 have Ubuntu. They're dignified people. They know their worth, and and so they they have that joy. And when I was then in Ramallah, I was like, oh, this is like what they mean. Like the <laughs> the people that I met there, you know, I'm coming in with all this like history in my head of what's happened and and I'm expecting one thing and everyone there is as you said a dignified people who are showing like joy and generosity to us um and so I, I feel what you're saying when you say that and I wonder if there is a book that you could recommend to my listeners uh you know whether it's about the Palestinian people or about the the actual situation so that they can they can understand more and and learn about the Palestinian people. I'm an avid reader, so I can't really pick just one. Uh, I, okay, but I, I you do can have pick a, like I ha- three. Go for I, it. <laughs> I do have a tab on my blog, which is epalestine.ps, and there you're going to find that uh, the tab will say recommended readings, and you'll find several, which I think are key readings to understand not only the conflict but the Palestinian people per se, which is your original question about. What are these Palestinians if you put the conflict aside? And there's some books there that will explain that as well. So epalestine.ps under recommended We'll readings. put it in the, sh- in the show notes Excellent. 100%. Great. I always suggest Elon Pape and Noam Chomsky, and then I get sort of looks from people when I suggest them. And I'm like, I mean, you asked. <laughs> yeah, if they can't accept people who are intellectual uh, you know, uh, kings in this world, that's their problem. Uh, but mm-hmm. my list has them and many others as well. Absolutely. And then before I ask you my two closeout questions, I want to know, is is there anything I didn't ask you that you think people should know? Uh, maybe my current project focus. As an yes, activist, please. we always have something on the top of the list, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently trying to help a Palestinian woman writer. Her name is Fida Jidius, uh, who has just completed a manuscript and is seeking a publisher. Fida is one of uh, a handful of Palestinians who was able to experience what return to Israel uh, really means. She was born in Lebanon, lost her mother in a bombing in 1983 in Lebanon, uh, roamed the world before getting permission to return with her father and brother to Israel as part of the Oslo deal. Only a handful of people have been able to do that. I read her manuscript and it's a wow, Uh, but I'm witnessing firsthand what today's cancel culture means for a Palestinian to get published in the mainstream. But we haven't given up hope. So I mentioned this. Maybe one of your listeners can open up a publisher's door to give this amazing story a fair chance of getting published. Uh, and that's one of the projects that I'm currently working on. I mean, I'm willing to ask my publisher. I so. appreciate that. <laughs> it's a good start. <laughs> so my, my two closeout questions, they're not for the faint of heart. Um, <laughs> what is your greatest fear for humanity? Wow. That we lose commitment to the rules-based world that emerged as a result of World War II. Not because such a world order is perfect, but because it's the best we have to date. Without a rules-based world order, we are left with the likes of Trump and the law of the jungle. We just saw what the law of the jungle looks like in Gaza yet again. We should all be worried if that's going to be accepted in today's world. 
Absolutely. So then what would you say is your greatest hope for humanity? That women are rising in all sectors and in all countries. This is not to say that every woman is worthy of support, but collectively, as society becomes more equitable, there is an embedded hope that we can make the needed historic corrections and look forward together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, people always talk about, um, well, she's a woman and she did this. And I'm like, there's a difference between female achievement and feminist achievement. Kellyanne Conway is not huh? getting my support <laughs> for her achievement because her achievement has harmed people. But yeah. Yeah. Nikki Haley, who's going to be our next candidate for president in the U.S., is not worthy of support, and she's a woman. So I talk about the collective equity in society and not necessarily mm-hmm. every single individual who happens to be a male or female because of that. That's yeah. not enough to be supportive. You have to stand for the right values. Oh, please don't remind me that Nikki Haley wants to do that. <laughs> I, I forgot. Oh, goodness. Yeah, it's a sad, sad state of affairs in the U.S. It, it really is, hence why I'm not there. Um, well, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a real treat to speak with you. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's great seeing you again. And I hope next to see you back in Palestine or you and I both in South Africa. Yes, very soon, hopefully. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcast. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.